there's so many things we can do there, but there aren't a lot of places doing calf research now. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now, you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Beef Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. Welcome to another episode of the Beef Podcast Show. My name is Dr. Stephanie Hansen. I'm a feedlot nutritionist at Iowa State University, and it is my pleasure to introduce our guest today, Dr. Glenn Duff. Dr. Duff received his BS degree from Northwest Missouri State University, MS degree from the University of Arkansas, and PhD from New Mexico State. Dr. Duff worked as a research specialist for the University of Arkansas, as a sales nutritionist for Far Better Feeds, and as a postdoc interim superintendent and, super, and superintendent for the New Mexico State University Clayton Livestock Research Center. Dr. Duff was an associate professor and then professor at the University of Arizona. He then was department head for the Animal and Range Sciences and interim dean of the College of Ag at Montana State University. He moved to New Mexico State University to be department head of Animal and Range Sciences. He currently serves as professor and superintendent for the New Mexico State University Clayton Livestock Research Center and has published 89 peer-reviewed articles and been director or co-project director of over $10 million in uh, funding. He has taught applied nutrition, statistical methods, beef production, stocker and feedlot management, and dairy production courses, has served a variety of offices across the Animal Science Society, especially in the Western section and the National Society, and has been active in his local community as a youth supporter, a member of the Rotary Club, the Rotary Club of Tucson Sunset, where he served on numerous club committees and has been the board of directors serving as secretary, president-elect, president, and past president. Currently the president of the Rotary Club of Clayton, Glenn and Donna have a farm south of Clayton and grow forages and purebred Gelby cattle. They have one son, Tim, residing in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So welcome to the show, Glenn. Thank you. And I grew up in Xyra, Iowa. Uh-huh. I feel like we should just call this show Six Degrees of Iowa because yes. every guest yeah. is like, well, I'm from Iowa, you know, or I went to Iowa State for this degree or my grandparents are from Iowa. So <laughs> nice. I love yeah. it. I love it. Well, you can see here behind me in the sunroom, if you happen to be watching the show on YouTube, we definitely got some snow yesterday, but you just said that you got some snow in New Mexico too. We did. We were happy to receive it. Absolutely. Well, you've had quite the journey, um, kind of a balance of faculty positions and administrative roles. So tell us a little bit about how you got involved in the beef industry and what brought you to this point of your career. Yes. So as I mentioned, I grew up in Xyra and uh, actually grew up raising purebred swine and then went to Northwest and actually uh, worked in dairy production. And then my master's was in uh, dairy science of reproductive physiology related area. And then when I moved to New Mexico State University, I got involved in the uh, beef industry and the feedlot industry, working with uh, Dr. Mike Gallion, who was my major professor. And then I 
was fortunate to have worked up here at the Plain Livestock Research Center during my PhD program, and uh, Glenn Lofgren was the superintendent at the station. So, so that kind of uh, steered me towards the feedlot nutrition or nutrition management aspect. So, really enjoyed working with cattle. It'd be hard not to with both Galleon and Lofgren uh, <laughs> um, influences there. <laughs> Those are some of our classic names in feedlot nutrition. Okay, so tell us a little bit more about your current role there at the, um, the Livestock Research Center, and then we're going to jump into talking about some of the really cool research you guys have going on right now. Okay, so my current role is uh, primarily a faculty member. There's always some administration that uh, we deal with, but uh, I do the research, so I basically got a 70% research, 30% teaching appointment. In my current teaching, I uh, uh, am the uh, primary instructor for a uh, uh, stocker feedlot class, and then I also teach uh, dairy production class. And then the research is uh, deals anything from receiving calves all the way through finishing. We do uh, some uh, stocker work, working at uh, different uh, uh, pastures, improved pastures on irrigated land. And then we also are, are doing the uh, just the finishing work. So all phases of uh, the uh, feedlot industry. And then personally, I have some uh, purebred gelby cows too. So, so I also do some, uh, trying to do some seed stock work there. And then we're going to be using those cows on a new project where we're looking at methane production in those cows on improved pastures versus uh, some of the animals that we're doing here. Excellent. So remind our listeners where exactly Clayton is. Middle of nowhere. <laughs> well, I, te I teed you up for that one. <laughs> <laughs> you did. So we are in the northeast corner of New Mexico. I can look out my window here, see Texas and Oklahoma. Literally. Right, so. right. And that's what I wanted to make sure listeners appreciated how close you are to really the heart of some of the cattle feeding territory there, the, the pain handle and stuff of Texas. Yes. Yeah, so we're uh, about seven miles east of Clayton. We are four miles from Texas and about six miles from the Oklahoma pain handle. So we're in the High Plains area. Uh, elevation here is about 5,000 feet. So we are pretty high. We get uh Pretty cold in the winter, get some, uh, quite a bit of snow from time to time, and then uh, cold weather. But the nice thing, because of the elevation, we don't have a lot of problems with uh, heat stress here. In fact, we hardly ever have any uh, heat stress issues. Uh, most of my places that I've lived up here, we don't even have uh, air conditioning. So, because the wind blows all the time, or actually, I think the 11th windiest city in the United States. So it keeps it from getting too hot in the summer. So, Interesting. Also makes it colder in the winter. Absolutely. Yeah, it was like one degree feels like minus um, 12 here or something this morning. And I'm going to Florida next week for a conference and it's supposed to be 87. And I'm heat stressed just at the thought of going to 87 degrees in February. Yes, definitely. <laughs> So tell us a little bit more. Um, I've actually never been to the Clayton facility, but I've heard a lot about it from Mark Brainine and other kind of friends and colleagues that I have. And I know it's got a long history of some great feedlot research and great folks working there. Tell us a little bit about the facility that you have there. 
This facility was built in 1978 was the opening, so they started building the research center somewhere around 1976. So it was appropriated by the state legislature with the focus of the research to work on health and performance of newly received calves. We have 48 feedlot pens, and they, uh, the pens have, oh, they're about uh, 50 foot wide by 110 foot long. So we can hold somewhere around 20 head on the uh, finishing diets, uh, newly received calves. We could put a few more in, 25. 30 head in each pen. They have automatic waters in the pens. They have uh, concrete feed bunks, a uh, uh, feeding pad right along the, the bunks. And the feed mill, we are able to steam flake our corn. We can bring in all of our commodities. Uh, we have some uh, commodity bays where we can bring in our uh, co-products, uh, the haze, and then we most of the time, we mix our own pre-mix in the mills and then store it in overhead bins. So, so it's a really practical facility. It has a nice slope to it. We don't get a lot of rain here, so we don't have any problems with mud. It can get cold in the winter. And as I mentioned, we usually don't have that many problems in the summer with heat stress because of the low humidity. And then the wind does blow, so the cattle don't have that many problems with the heat stress. And then we we sit on the uh, Kiowa National Grasslands. So the Forest Service is actually our landlord or the government. And then we uh 320 acres. We have 120 acres. That, uh, we have a center pivot that doesn't currently work, but our well over there pumps about 800 gallons a minute. So. So we could raise corn or grow corn if we wanted, but most of the time we'll do uh, annuals. We'll look at uh, winter wheat and then uh, do that with the uh, with the center pivot. So, so it's a really nice setup. And then we have about probably 200 or uh, 180 acres of native grass that we can do some smaller projects with some normally fistulated animals if we want. Uh, some, we don't have enough that we can do any production research on that, but we can do more basic projects on the uh, native range. So you've got, um, you don't have the rain problem, air quotes around problem, um, so you don't have mud in your pens, but you've got the counter problem to that, right, which is a limited amount of water. We were chatting a little bit in the in the pre-show talking about how you sit on top of the Ogallala Aquifer. So tell us some of the things that you guys are studying right now to try to figure out how you help producers in that area deal with the future with water limitations. Yeah, so there's a lot of data coming out that the Ogallala, particularly the southern Ogallala, that goes down uh, the Texas Panhandle, southern part of New Mexico is on the Ogallala. It is uh, decreasing in volume. So some of the things that we're doing with uh, research here is we're looking at alternative forages. So we've got uh, one study that we're doing that's on a uh, private facility, but we're looking at uh, planting some perennial pastures. So it's got fescue in it. It has uh, broom grass, uh, perennial ryegrass, orchard grass, 
uh, intermediate wheatgrass, creeping wheatgrass, and then we also planted five pounds per acre alfalfa. We're looking at that versus our annuals, and most of the annual production here is uh, wheat pasture. So we do wheat. Some people will follow it up, double crop it with uh, millet or a Sudan grass hay grazer type forage. So we're looking at alternative forages for production on these irrigated pastures. There's been a, some papers coming out that uh, one paper actually mentions that now is the time to make the transition over to the grasses if you're going to do it. Why you still have the water to get them started? Because eventually the water's not going to be there. And several of the pastures around this part of the country is they will only irrigate about half the pasture because that's all the water that they can put down. So, so then we have to look at different uh, production practices for these producers when the uh, when the water continue as the water continues to decline. So, are you seeing some changes too in? Um... You know, I don't know that we know much about this yet, but do we know the cow that has a lower water requirement or, you know, picking the right beast for some of these environments? Yeah, so that's one of the other projects we have going on is we're looking at some heritage breeds. Right now we're working with uh, Ramiri Criollo cattle, which is a specific subtype of Criollo. And your Criollo cattle are like your old world Spanish type breeds. So like your Corrientes or your Rupin Steers or Criollos, Longhorns are Criollos, uh, Florida Crackers are Criollos. So they're a smaller breed cow. And one of the things they found out in research conducted at the Hornada is these Criollo cattle will utilize the landscape better than some of our larger breed animals. Uh, they, there's data suggests they'll travel farther away from water. And then uh, maybe not water as often as uh, some of the traditional beef breeds that we use. But we don't know if they have lower water requirements or take in less water. Maybe that they drink more water while they're there on a percentage basis. But one of the problems that we have then is if you go to market the Criollo type cattle, like your Corriente calves, uh, even longhorn calves, you really get a uh, dock at the sale barn because of the perception that these cattle, and they probably don't uh, perform as well in the feedlot or produce as good at carcass kind of characteristics. So we looked at crossing these, calf, these cows to produce calves. They were Angus crosses. We had red Angus crosses and then also Brangus. And when those calves come into the feedlot, if you didn't know that they were Creole crosses, you wouldn't be able to tell. And the first, we just harvested the second year's data, and it looks like they perform just as well, and then also produce uh, just as high of a quality carcass as our traditional uh, beef breeds. That's really interesting. Do you think that your do your producers largely use bulls out on range, or is there much artificial insemination that's being used? Mostly as you bulls. think about, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so that'd be one of the challenges, right? Like. We have an Angus bull that's going to have to survive in that same environment with a bunch of cows that are like, oh, this is great. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, it is a challenge, you know. And then it's uh, one of the benefits that we've been talking about is with these cows is, you know, you have to have the majority of your animals 
as that biotype to really get the benefits on the uh, the semi-arid uh, arid environments of the Southwest. So, so it really didn't work just to uh, have a bunch of cows and put a Criollo bull on versus having Criollo cows and putting the beef breeds on the cows. So. I think one of the things that's so fascinating about um... – What's that necessity is the mother of invention statement, right? So that I think we're going to be forced to be more creative than ever as we're facing some of these challenges. Um, so I, that's going to be very interesting to see what you guys come up with on this water shortage side. It will be, yeah. And then we're also uh, at the same time as we're going to be looking at the uh, methane production on the cows. We bought some green feed systems that measures the methane. And then also the major CO2, and we got the oxygen sensors on there. Eventually, I'd like to develop energy equations for some of these different cows and to see what the best breeds are for the landscape that we have here. Yeah, and so many challenges associated with intake and other things on grazing animals, right? Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned uh, when you were telling us about the the um, station there, the, or the research center, that one of its kind of jobs was to work on receiving cattle um, challenges. So both the nutrition and maybe the health side of it. So maybe let's start with what what would you say are some of the like the most impactful research studies that have come out of that center in terms of what we know about receiving cattle? Yeah, uh, metaphylactic use of antibiotics has been Probably one of the uh, 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 research projects that we've had that's really become industry standard has been some of the work we've done here on metaphylactically treating animals. And that goes back to when Dr. Glenn Lofgren was here. He was looking at uh, oxytetracycline, uh, metaphylactically treating the animals, and then we've done some work uh, since then. But that's one of the management tools that does work, but, you know, with everything that comes about with the potential for antibiotic resistance is we look at alternative uh, projects to see if we can get the animals eating better. And once they start eating, then we believe that uh, that's half the battle. And then we had a graduate student that just completed her master's degree. We were looking at uh water intake with these animals. We were looking at putting out water, different water uh, tanks uh, in addition to our automatic waters. And we did find out that these additional tanks, they will drink more water, total water with those tanks versus using automatic water. So we believe that it's they're probably more familiar with those tanks. And that way they, uh, they're more likely to go up and drink water. And if you can get them rehydrated, that should be a better way to get them uh, off to a good start. So it's a challenge. Uh, if you don't metaphorically treat these animals, we can have 60, 70% morbidity in those animals. So, you know, and even when you metaphorically treat them, it'll go down 20, 15, 20% morbidity. Because so. you would be bringing a pretty high risk calf into your feed yard. Yeah, so we get our calves from the southeastern United States. They are, uh, most of them are still balling calves, so they were weaned at the sale barn. They're pretty high risk calves coming in. 
So, you know, and we work with our local veterinarians to ensure that the health of the calves are, you know, we can do the best ability, the best of our ability to maintain them healthy. So, yeah, that that calf has a few disadvantages, right? So he may or may not have been castrated if we're talking about a male. Um, so then we have that extra stress. We in the southeast U.S., except for a few places, we're mostly talking about relatively small producers. So they might have put some pot loads together with their neighbors. So you've got commingling right off the bat, and then that's a that's a long truck ride between say. Georgia or Kentucky and, you know, the near panhandle of Texas, they're probably on a truck for 15 to 20 hours. Yeah. Most of them coming in here are on the truck about 18 hours. So we get a lot of calves from uh, uh, Louisiana, Texas border. Uh, you know, we get them from Mississippi, you know, so they're out there on the truck a long time, you know, and then it's a, uh, they're commingled with new calves. They're introduced to new pathogens. Uh, they, like you say, they may or may not have been vaccinated. Most of them probably haven't been vaccinated. If you get some uh, male calves in, uh, pretty good likelihood they're going to be bulls. So then we have to castrate them. And that's uh, added stress on them. So they're pretty high, highly stressed animals when they come in. Yeah, it's it's interesting that your trucking event, you know, being about 18 hours, that's actually what a lot of our research at Iowa State has been using. We've been between eight, 16 and 20 hours for a lot of our trucking events. Sometimes people will push back and say, is there really any calves that are on the truck for that long? And I'd say my example is always if you're a Southeast calf and you're going to a feedlot in Oklahoma or something like that, yes, you're on a truck for 16 to 18 hours. So I think it's so interesting to think about um, I, I love looking to like the human literature, right? So what are they learning about muscle recovery in the human literature or other things, even the swine literature, other species, right? That have to truck animals. What are we learning about how trailer vibrations or the quality of the truckers, right? There's some great data from Canada that would say like the more experienced truckers can get you a lot less stressed animal, right? Because they're not cornering on two wheels. Not that you'd have cornering nine wheels, I guess, on an 18 wheeler. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Or going up to stop sign and slamming on the brakes, and, you know. And there's things even like the uh, the cleanliness of the trailer. You know, we'll have some calves come in if they're on the bottom. You know, they'll come in wet, and if it's like this time of the year, they're going to be cold stressed, and you know that. And then the uh, the exhaust on the trailers, uh, you know, and if they happen to have a uh, a breakdown along the way. That just adds more animal, more hours as animals are on the trailer. I think one of the good things we've done in the industry is set up the beef quality assurance trading for uh, transportation. You know, and then we can get more people thinking about what we're doing on these calves. I think we would have fewer problems. And I almost got lynched at a southern section meeting when I brought up that. Perhaps they don't do as good a job in the Southeast on vaccination programs. <laughs> and they almost threw me out of the meeting, but but I think it's true. You know, with the smaller producers, some of them don't have the facilities that they need to properly vaccinate their animals. And if we could do a better job on vaccination programs, I think that goes a long ways towards the health of these animals, too. And we had a farm in Missouri, and our neighbor there 
this was like two, three years ago, thought he was doing everything he could when he vaccinated his animals because he gave them black leg. And I brought up that you have them up there, it's not that much more expense to give them a respiratory vaccine. Look at the year. IBR, PA3, BVD, BRSB. If you do that, and then also if they could just wean the calves, even for a few days, to get them over wanting to find their mama, you know, I think that goes a long ways for improving the health of the animals. Yeah, you're so right, though. The smaller operations, it's sometimes it's labor, sometimes it's infrastructure. You know, we push things like pasture line or fence line weaning, but if you don't have another pasture, it's pretty hard to have a fence line between it, right? You only have a pasture because that's all you have, um, or you don't have a place that you can haul them down the road because you don't have the right equipment. That's that's a real challenge. And the segmentation of the beef industry is such a challenge, period. It is. And one of the things we're doing on another side project we're doing here for, uh, it's, uh, it's on that cap grant, the uh, NEFA grant that we have. Uh, we're looking at virtual fence. And I would like to look at using virtual fence for uh, weaning practices. Because we know if we use the uh, nose. Uh, nose flaps. Yeah, nose flaps. It, you know, that's less stress on those animals. So maybe we could even look at uh, something like a virtual fence for weaning those calves so they can see their mama and, you know, have a little bit of separation. So I think that would be a really interesting project. Definitely. So tell us a little bit. So this stressed calf has arrived at your yard. I know you guys have done lots of work on some of the maybe nutritional strategies on arrival to help him get off to the best start. So tell us a little bit about what you're working on now um, in that field. Yep. So we're going to be looking at uh, just using some long stem hay. You know, there's been some progress reports out there and then a few uh Western section papers, but we really don't know what the best uh, long stem hay that we might be able to put out after arrival to see if we can get those calves started eating, getting their rumen really developing again. We're doing that. We've recently uh, published a paper where we're looking at uh, fat source or just including fat in the diet of these animals. So we've got that. Uh, We've been doing things with some feed additives, uh, just seeing if that would help get these animals off to the right start. Uh, the other thing, I've got a graduate student working on her PhD, and we're going to be looking at uh, hospital diets. When we get these animals, what do we feed them? Is it better to put them back in their home pen? Is it better to put them in a hospital pen where they're exposed to newer animals, uh, other pathogens? So we're going to be looking at uh, just what can we do? How can we feed these uh, morbid animals? Yeah. So what kind of things are you digging into when you're thinking about the hospital versus the home pen? Because I think that is one of the biggest questions that we have. We just don't really know what to feed the sick animal. We don't. So uh, looking at uh, different energy levels and most likely you're going to have to add a little bit of fat into those hospital diets. Uh, Refuge sources, there's a lot of people believe in feeding them like cottonseed hulls for their refuge in these hospital diets. But is it better to do that? Is it better to uh, maybe feed them higher concentrate diets in these uh, hospital pans? So, 
So we're going to be doing uh, several projects like that with this graduate student. So, and then just the behavior. So we were fortunate to put in some uh, uh, smart feed systems, but any of your feeding systems that can measure the behavior of the animals, I'm just interested in, you know, do they eat more when you put them in a the hospital pen or do they eat less or, you know, what is the eating behavior? Because they have to set up that pecking order. So are you putting them in with new animals? Do they have to set up a pecking order when they already aren't feeling up to par, you know, or, or are you better to put them back in your home pen and just look at uh, the feeding behavior there? Yeah, the hospital pen, sometimes it feels like the only real advantage it has is that it's probably closer to the working facility than the home pen is, and it's easier to keep an eye on that animal. But I agree, between the social hierarchy, like you're talking about, the steers, like, okay, I got 15 new friends, but I didn't have any of them an hour ago. Who's going to get to eat first? And you got to establish that. So that's stressful. And then is it really a good idea to, to do a big shift in their diet, you know, and then he's got to, and then we're going to put him back in the home pen and then he's going to have acidosis for two weeks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, a lot of yeah. times it's hard to tell between respiratory disease and acidosis. They have the same symptoms, you know, it's, you know, maybe they wouldn't have the nasal discharge on the acidosis, but they certainly going to be lethargic. Yeah. Uh, you're going to be breathing hard, trying to get rid of the extra acid load. And, you know, it's just, uh, there's a lot of challenges. So, and I don't know what the best way to uh, treat these animals. So I'm hoping some of the data that we're doing will help uh, answer some of those questions. Yeah, the, the high energy makes a lot of sense to me, right? Because oftentimes their feed intake is very limited anyway. So get the most calories into each mouthful, I'm guessing, is kind of your philosophy there. Yeah. Yep. But then there may be things, uh, you know, like your direct-fed microbials. Uh, what is the level of ionophores that we feed in these hospital pens? So, so there's just so many questions out there. So. And there might be some cases where, you know, some of these products that seem to work in stressed animals and not necessarily give us a response in non-stressed animals, that the hospital diet is a a great candidate for something like that, right? Like if you're going to put your money in that small package, put it there because you're likely going to help that calf calf recover, especially after you've put in the dollars into him for whatever antibiotic treatment you gave him, right? Like give it the best chance to work. Yeah. And the price of the calves now. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so I guess the acidosis comment made me think a little bit about, um, have you guys been doing anything with like liver abscesses down there yeah. or following up? Yeah, so uh, we had a grad student a couple of years ago looked at the uh, sample of the calves at slaughter, and then also uh, they went out to the feedlots and sampled some of the feedlot pens to to see, you know, was there more organisms that could cause liver abscesses? So, so liver abscesses can be a problem, and we don't feed uh, thylacin in our Diets here primarily because of the vet uh, feed directive. Our local veterinarian doesn't like doing prescriptions. So, you know, I, I can get it, but, uh, you know, it's just harder to do. So, and that's what a lot of the feed yards around here is they just, they don't use as many uh, or as much thylacin as what they did at one time in their diet. So, 
But it can be, at certain times of year, liver abscess can be a problem. Do you feed much for dairy? So you talked about some teaching in dairy production and things like that. Do you feed much for dairy crosses? We are actually looking at buying some right now. So, I mean, that's going to be a big part of the industry here. There's a lot of dairies in this part of the country. And their calves uh, are dairy beef crosses. So, you know, and I've, that's what I did when I was in Arizona is I worked with the neonatal dairy calf. Took them from day one all the way through finishing. So I'd like to do more on the calf in because do you feed them as a beef calf? Do you feed them as a dairy calf? You know, they should be hybrid bigger there. Uh, do they require more fat protein in their milk replacer? Do you wean them at different times? So I'm hoping to get that research going too. Yeah, let's talk about that because I think that's fascinating because we're comparing a calf who is raised kind of in isolation, he's in a hutch or something by himself versus the beef calf who's like, quite frankly, we don't really know what he's doing. He's nursing mom, right? And we're going to pick him up in six months, <laughs> um, which I appreciate. What do you think are some of the biggest research questions in that space of how we grow um, this beef on dairy calf to bring them into the feedlots eventually successfully. And one of the things that we just talked about liver abscesses, I think they have bigger liver abscess problems. So, you know, it could be that if we feed them like a dairy calf, they're going to be on a high concentrate diet a lot longer. You know, at what point in time are we causing liver abscesses? Is there some intervention there that we can, we can do to help prevent that, uh, just the social behavior on these calves too. You know, the calves that are out there with the cows, they they know how to interact with some of their other cohorts, but the dairy calf, they're raised in isolation. They're gonna have to always learn how to set up their pecking order or what they know their uh, role is in the environment that they're put in. So, so there's a lot of research questions there. One of the things, uh, that uh, when I was working with the Holstein calves, uh, I know that later on we have more problems with Holstein calves riding each other. So, you know, could that be a problem just because of the way they're reared up the first 60 days of life? Is it that they're always trying to set up their pecking order? So, so I think there's a lot that we can do on the behavior side of it. Just, uh, you know, it's just, does what we're doing, is that causing a problem later on? Because it just socially, they don't know how to act. So I'm not very well read in this particular space. Is there some work going on at different universities about looking at like group housing, things like that for this kind of grower phase so that they learn some of those social interactions? Yeah, we did some in Arizona. I had a grad student there that we looked at uh, group housing and then uh, versus single housing and then also feeding them with a uh, a bucket versus a bottle, just to see, you know, do they have differences in performance of those calves? So, and it looks like there is, you know, it's one of the things I observed and the reason we did that project was when we fed in a group with the bottles, the dominant calf gets, calf gets most of the milk. They'll steal from the other calves. So then we, we just like to see if it helped to uh, feed them out of a trough versus the bottles. So, so I think there's a lot of 
work that can be done, but there's not very many places are doing the uh, dairy calf research. It's, it's a lot of uh, labor involved. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I was thinking about too. When I was a undergrad at Iowa State, my senior year, one of my three jobs that I had was um, feeding calves at uh, APC uh, outside of town. And so I would feed, you know, be making milk and feeding calves at five o'clock in the morning and stuff. Um, I wonder if this is an opportunity for like the virtual fencing or something like that. Cause I'm envisioning like a, a, a group housing situation, but each calf almost the same way we train cows for Kalen gates, right? Like a calf would be like, that's my spot. And then he can't leave until he finishes his bottle, but somebody else can't come in and drink his milk because I I can totally see your point that you could have incredible variation in the weight gain in a pen. um, If we have really consistent intakes. Yeah. No, that's a great idea on the virtual fence. It's I think there's so many things we can do there, but there aren't a lot of places doing calf research now. That's all. Yeah. The other thing is I've wondered, and it's, you've said it before, right? Is like, do we feed them like a dairy calf? Do we feed a? And I feel like the, the you know the dairy folks have it dialed in to how they make the replacement heifer, but not necessarily how they make the high growing. I just don't want to feed that calf for a year. I'm sorry. I like I, that's what I don't love about the the dairy you know stuff coming into it, right? It's like I I don't want to tie up that space for that long, um, you know. So how do we get better gains in the interim so that he's not 400 pounds when he comes in and he's not leaving for a year. Yeah, I know. Yeah. There's a lot of opportunities for research there. I'm hoping we can get that something set up here to do some of the calf research because it's going to be a significant uh, portion of the beef industry for years to come. You know, and just the Holsteins for a long time, that was pretty significant industry. Now a lot of the dairies are are going with the crosses on their for their calves because they can get more out of that uh, beef dairy cross than what they can the uh, the purebred Holstein to purebred dairy calves. Do you think that we'll move more towards beef embryos? So those dairy cows are just incubating beef embryos. So we, I mean, we still have some epigenetic effects, probably, and other things from being incubated in a dairy cow and everything that she got fed, but we have a purebred beef calf that she come that she delivers instead of a cross. Yeah. It's a great idea. Hope we go that way. (laughs) It's not my own. I was talking to somebody from Idaho one day and they were like, yeah, I think eventually they were talking about how terrible the reproductive rates are in dairy cows. And they're like, you know, she's like, she can house it. She's just really terrible at getting bred initially or something like that. And they were like, we're just going to skip that step, put an embryo in. And I think as we get, faster at those things. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And then also they could do the uh, embryos from the cows they want to keep for replacements or, you know, so. Oh yeah. Cause the dairy industry is all over that, right? Like they've got four month old heifers that they're extracting oocytes and stuff from, right. And like basically producing that heifer's granddaughters by the time she gets to be old enough to be able to, uh, you know, actually produce her own calf. It's crazy. It is. I mean, there's a lot of advances there. I mean, I don't keep up with the technology as much as I do on the other, the feedlot side, but I know they've made quite a few advances in that area of reproduction. So given your years of experience with dealing with some of the, maybe the purebred dairy calves coming into the yard, the purebred beef calves, and then these crosses, What's been your observation on the health of those calves? Usually have better health of the calves, the dairy calves coming into the uh, 
feed yards because they've had every opportunity to die before they get to that stage. So <laughs> you know, that's just. So I don't know if we're going to have more problems with health on uh, the calves prior to weaning when they're the beef dairy, but I would think that we'd have fewer problems because you should get some hybrid vigor there. Yeah, I've like seen a couple calves. of. Yeah, I've seen a couple of data sets from a couple of friends who work in this space. And I would say that these are casual observations at this point, but basically saying, you know, it takes a lot more to challenge a cross calf, a beef dairy cross calf, than it does to challenge a purebred dairy calf. So we know that the Holsteins, for example, are very pro-inflammatory. It's one of the side effects, I think, that came from the hardcore selection for milk. That's our you know, public service announcement of the day. Don't do single trait selection. <laughs> <laughs> I tease, I tease, but, um, but yeah, I, I think you're right. Although I, I like your comment too, right. That they've had the chance to die. So what made it to the feedlot from the, you know, dairy side maybe has the better chance of actually making it. Cause I think that is one of the challenges of having some of these really powerful antibiotics, right? Like we've had this increase in late day deads in the feedlot. Is it because they have an increased chance to die because they're alive so much longer to get them to these heavier weights? Or is it because they probably should have died when they were 600 pounds and got sick, but an antibiotic saved them. And then later when they have any kind of compromised lung function, it's like they're done. Yep. Yeah. That's good observation. That's, you know, we're not going to work ourselves out of jobs yet. So. <laughs> no, no. I, you know, so I'm a mineral nerd and whenever I give presentations, I always start by saying all the things that minerals are in. And then I have this little thing that comes up, it just says job security. And I think we could probably put the receiving calf nutrition in that area too. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, New Mexico is hosting the animal science national meetings this year. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. Excellent. And then I think Western section is going to be co-hosted with that. Yes. Yes. For a long time, it was in the Western section bylaws that when the meeting was in the Western section that they would co-host or be co-host or co-located, I guess, would be a better term. So, so yeah, it's uh, going to be National Canadian Society Western section meeting this year. So, so there Excellent. will be some good presentations. I think we have some really good symposia lined out, and it's a it's going to be a good meeting. It's guaranteed to be so, guaranteed to probably be hot because <laughs> it's in Albuquerque, right? It is in Albuquerque in July. Yes, in July, <laughs> but most of the bars are air conditioned, so we'll be put well. That that's the important part. The houses may not be, but the bars are. <laughs> well, the houses probably are there. <laughs> oh, it, it, it's going to be a good meeting. I so much enjoy the, uh, the animal science meetings and the section meetings. I enjoy all the sections. Yeah. So you've probably always been in Western section from where you've been. I have. I was in Southern section too. So, and then I used to, when I was here, uh, Prior to moving to Arizona, I always went to the Midwest section. You know, the Midwest section has always had good stocker feedlot sessions. You know, there's people forget that. They think it's more of a swine feeding, and it is primarily swine, but there's always been good stocker sessions going on and feedlot sessions at the Midwest section. 
Yeah, absolutely. We fill a good two and a half days of that meeting with beef research. So I think it's definitely one of the strongest sections. You know, Southeast section would be very strong for forages. Um, Northeast would be strong for dairy. And then the West is, I don't know if I say more variable, but just like, you know, range cow stuff, big feedlot, you know, kind of commercial size pens sort of things and stuff. So, and you're right, Midwest is swine and genetics and stuff, but it's okay. They're in their own rooms. We don't mingle with them. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> no need to. <laughs> Absolutely. I went to um, Western for the first time two years ago when it was in Fort Collins, took my whole grad group out. We road tripped out. We did a three-day trip at Estes Park. Um, that I took them hiking and stuff, just like kind of a thank you for being a great group. And we really enjoyed the the Western section. That was nice. Um, and then last year was Park City. We didn't get to go to that because we're just already starting the feedlot research season here by the end of September. So that's it's a tough time to do that, but it's a great meeting. It is. I think all the section meetings are really good meetings. And then I, I enjoy the national too. It's just so many opportunities to hear some good science and network with your colleagues. It's just, it's just a really good meeting. So good That's organization. The, the older you get, you don't actually make it through the doors to go to the meetings, right? You're just stuck in the hallway talking to people. Oh, you do. And sometimes that's the best place to, uh, to get your uh, new ideas. And you can have your grad students go to the sessions and they can, uh, they can brief you on what they found out. Yeah. <laughs> It definitely is. So, okay. It's time for our famous three. Well, we've reached the point of our final three questions. So are you ready for this? I'm ready. Okay. So the first question is, what is your favorite beef resource? Favorite beef resource. That would be, give me an example. Uh, let's see. We've heard the NRC, of course, for the nutritionists. I like trade publications, actually. Okay. You know, even being a scientist, I really enjoy the trade publications to be able to go in and just, it's more producer focused articles in there. So I really enjoy most of the trade uh, publications that I receive. Like, uh, progressive cattle, cattlemen's, uh, feedlot magazine, things like that. Absolutely. I just interviewed Dan Lloyd. That was one of the ones he suggested too, was, yes. uh, the, the trade publications. Same reason. Yeah. Finger on the pulse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Second question. Uh, what is something not related to beef that you're reading right now? Spillover. I'm rereading it actually because of, uh, so spillover is the uh, transfer of organisms from animals to humans. And there's recent uh, outbreak in Africa again. Of can't think of what the disease is, but they actually talked about it in spillover. So. Okay. Yeah. It's like a hemorrhagic fever, but not Ebola, right? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So they talked about that in spillover. Uh, you know, and then with COVID happening, uh, you know, some evidence that may have come from animals to humans. So, so I'm rereading Spillover. Nice. It's always interesting to hear what people are reading. 
Okay. So the third and final question is what is a trait of someone that you admire that has allowed them to be successful? Oh, great leadership. You know, it's just, there's some people who just lead other people. And so I mentioned one of them there at the beginning and that's Mark Gowan. I mean, he is just a natural born leader. You know, he just, and that's, I don't know how, you know, they get that trait, but it's a, it's something that I just really admire when people have natural born leadership skills. Nice. I definitely agree with that. Some people just have that je ne sais quoi, right? Yeah. Like they walk yeah. into a room and you're like, all right, you yeah. can be in charge. Yeah. <laughs> you seem to know what's going on. Yeah. I'll just sit in the back. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Dr. Duff, this has been really fun chatting with you today. We were glad to have you on the show and uh, look forward to having you again in the future. Yeah, anytime. And Mark Brainline is actually here today. I'll tell Is him you said hi. Yeah. You absolutely better tell him I said hi. I love yeah. Mark. He's a good guy. Yeah, he is. 